This is episode 101 of PZ's podcast, and it concerns ABBA and two arresting and archaeological songs in their repertoire. Now, you may be saying to yourself, oh my God, um, wouldn't you know that he'd finally get to ABBA? Well, it was a foregone conclusion, because ABBA is a pure moment of popular culture. You could almost say that the songs that I'm going to speak of, and there are many great ABBA songs, but these are the two that I just think have such a magnetic uh, and uh, uh, heuristic power. Um, A pure pop moment is like a good sermon, and it very rarely happens. It's when the creators are so completely in touch with that which is universal that they touch, because they're in touch with it themselves, they touch uh, the universal within every man and woman listening. And uh, there are many examples of this in the history of art and uh, many actually in the history of religion and the renewals and revivals of a kind of living or vital religion. But we certainly have, in my opinion, two stunning, to use the current word, examples of the ability of pop music to get underneath to the very deepest part of a person. We have this in two songs, one of which you've already heard, entitled Lay All Your Love on Me, and the last of which, which will conclude the podcast, a song which was their breakthrough as a result of the 1974 Eurovision Song Contest, their song Waterloo. Now these, um, I'm not going to speak of the historical facts related to ABBA. You can find that out and you probably know it already. But these four, uh, Bjorn and Benny and Anna Frida and Agneta, who was the the magnet for the male energy, which allowed sometimes a relatively sentimental and almost uh, feminine sensibility to uh, intersect with a masculine sensibility and created the legend and the response, which was enormous. Now, I don't want to get all pretentious on you because I happen to love ABBA. I don't love ABBA in the way I love Jomique because... To me, uh, there's such a a kind of a a pop kind of um, constraint, or very quickly they got into a a, almost a um, a need to fulfill a certain kind of power that that you can never really uh, consistently reproduce. Although as much almost, but not quite as the Beatles, they reproduce the great pop moment, the great preaching moment as regularly as can be imagined. Now, um, personal story, uh, to start, uh, Abba has been with uh, me and Mary for many years because we were actually in Hounslow in uh, the London uh, county of Middlesex in the spring of 1974, and we were in Hounslow for a week, a little over a week, being part of a mission team on a Church of England evangelistic mission in the parish of Hounslow called Holy Trinity, which was a Catholic or Anglo-Catholic parish. And we were from the other side, you might say, of the stable. But the vicar there had had a very uh, uh, powerful personal experience in what was then called the charismatic renewal. And he wanted to share this experience with his congregation. He was a very fine man, a very good man, and in my opinion, a holy man, if I can use the word, but I felt it about this man. And so he invited a group of sort of unwashed um, evangelicals, as he called them, but renewal-oriented or Pentecostal-friendly Church of England evangelical young people, and my wife and I were among them, to undertake a kind of outreach both to the parish and from the parish. 
And extraordinary things happened. It's a very powerful moment, one of these things where something real happened as opposed to something repetitive or boring or simply not the case. Uh, something actually happened to a number of people, and we ourselves were deeply touched by the response emotionally to the message of God's grace. But what I remember almost more than that is that on the Saturday night of the mission, we were sent out in teams to the local youth club. And the youth club, as you see in old uh, movies about the Church of England, including um, the Dave Clark Five movie and including even Gideon of Scotland Yard, the John Ford film, it wasn't so long ago that the Church of England had youth clubs, and uh, they simply sponsored a hall or a place in the geography of the community where young people could go and sort of hang out. It was kind of a, a very a safe and protected, but not preachy or uh, evangelizing or proselytizing, but just a nice place where under the auspices of the church, usually with sort of a young assistant uh, minister sort of around, but not heavy-handedly, young people could gather, and they did in their hundreds, and they were often Saturday night dances, as Jeff Goddard's memorable single, YouTube, that one, Saturday Dance by uh, Joe Meek and Jeff Goddard, but you'd have dances at these places. And although young people were young people and nothing has changed, uh, it was kind of a good thing. So we went one night, uh, the Saturday night of this mission in June, I believe it was, of 1974, and uh, the kids, mainly the girls, the sort of 16, 14 to 16-year-old girls, they were more, uh, um, what's the word, forward than the guys who were at that age were <clears throat> a little, they were going to be with the girls, but they were sort of nerdly and not quite knowing what to do. And these very hip young 14-year-olds to 16-year-olds suddenly put on the record player a, a song that I'd never heard. And they were dancing up a storm, and they were really, they were all had their party dresses on. These were English girls who were not really members of the parish, but they lived in what English people call the parish, which is the community. And they started doing a kind of line dancing that was electric to a song that I'd never heard. And I turned to Mary and I said, what is that song? What I remember more about the Hanslow mission than even the spiritual benefits, which I hope were accrued to all of us and maybe the parish itself, is the song. And I turned to her at the end of the song, what is that song? And I asked one of the girls and I said, what are you dancing to? And she said, oh, it's a song. It's called Waterloo by a Swedish pop group. And then she explained that it had won the Eurovision uh, contest on television, which I'd never heard of and later learned to know about, the notorious now Eurovision contest. And this song had won. And they were, they were dancing <clears throat> in what later to be called, came to be called a kind of glam phenomenon uh, to this song Waterloo by Abba Waterloo da, 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 da. you won the war couldn't escape if I wanted to ba -da, ba -da, ba -da. well it was just unbelievable and uh, that was our little getting on the ground floor so when I think of Hounslow Middlesex and Holy Trinity Parish as much as uh, the good that may have been accomplished uh, from a theological point of view I remember at the community center at the uh, church hall these amazing line danced uh, routines to Waterloo which had only just come out well now let's talk about Abba, that was my personal history. There's one other footnote that I have to mention. Abba was the first uh, non-English-speaking group in Europe that uh, pioneered the technique of singing in English. Now, today, English is universal, and you almost wouldn't find, except sometimes among the French groups, when it comes to sort of Europop, you wouldn't find any song not being um, sung in English. It's just the way it is. But that was not true prior to 1974. 
And all of a sudden you had this <clears throat> gorgeous and electric and uh, a totally uh, compulsive dance music uh, with English lyrics. But one of the funny things about English lyrics when they are written by European people is that European people don't um, uh, no, um, really don't speak English as their Muttersprache. They, they, their, their mother tongue is Swedish or Norwegian or <coughs> French. And so they, um, th even though they learn English now starting in the first grade, <coughs> starting when they're six, and they're virtually bilingual when you talk to them, and they, they really don't want to talk their own language to you. They want to show you how great they speak English and also practice. And, um, woe to you if you're trying to learn their own language. But the um, power that ABBA had is they, they started this trend of uh, European people whose mother tongue was not English <coughs> singing in colloquial English. And so there are all sorts of mistakes, delightful mistakes, major mistakes in uh, a lot of the, especially the Italian disco and some of the French disco later on is really hysterical. But even in ABBA, they express themselves in ways that Americans, at least, would never have written English. And uh, you, you, you'll just note this. For example, in uh, Lay All Your Love on Me, which you just heard, the line, now every woman I see is a potential threat. Well, potential is a little bit too big a word for American pop. We might use it uh, sort of almost as a rapping thing, uh, more for the noise of it, but for the meaning of it, that's a different thing. And when in Lay All Your Love on Me, they sing, now everything is new and all I've learned has overturned, they're, um, at that time they were using uh, overturned as an intransitive rather than a passive uh, expression. And it's sound strange and when they say don't go wasting your emotion lay all your love on me well there uh, two things are happening first they very brilliantly decided in the chorus as the song goes on to make it sound like a church choir or a congregation singing and it was conscious even though they're notoriously atheistic at least I think it's Bjorn they um, brilliantly uh, uh, replicated the sound of a of a uh, of a Scandinavian church congregation singing, which really connects. It's almost a religious song as a result. But would we say, don't go wasting your emotion, lay all your love on me? We might say, lay your love on me, or <clears throat> don't waste your emotion, but don't go wasting your emotion. Later on, uh, they use the word, uh, uh, I've had a few little love affairs that didn't last very long, and they've been pretty scarce. And then the one line that is so classic, it makes the truth even more incomprehensible. It makes the truth even more incomprehensible. Well, that's the kind of thing you'll also find in their breakthrough, which was earlier, called Waterloo. Although Waterloo, uh, because it doesn't try to take on such a large kind of a, a canvas with its musical palette, uh, Waterloo is a little more direct. But I just want to point out to you that the use of English by European people who, with all goodwill, write their lyrics in English, want to sing in English, crave being accepted by the English-speaking world, and yet it's not their mother tongue, often come out with whoppers. Now, um, let's just talk for a second about what's being said, and this is where we come into the nature of the pop moment. 
And I might add the preaching moment. A number of people who listen to this podcast write me. And by the way, the address for PZ's podcast, and I really do invite you to write, is pzspodcast at gmail.com. Now that's PZS podcast, all one word without an apostrophe, pzspodcast at gmail.com. Please write me. And a number of people have written me and say, how does this, what you're saying, um, relate to the creative enterprise as a writer or an artist? Or how does it relate to preaching? Well, of course, it, it I say, of course, it, to me, it has everything to do with it. It is um, enormously – the pop moment is the moment in which these really inspired artists, as I see Abba, uh, connected something out of their own experience, something out of their own resonant pop land life that was underground and, and uh, is with many, 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 many millions of people. And they sort of – it rose out of the, 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 the internal landscape of a person, the archaeology, and uh, made uh, very uh, powerful thoughts public, which inevitably taps into people living in Australia, uh, people living in Ireland and people living in America because these uh, deep thoughts are all spread everywhere. Everyone has them. They're not about being white or black or uh, male or female or rich or poor. They're deep within every human being. They are the, in a sense, the the aspirings after love of the of true needy self who is looking constantly for salvation and hope, which is really a cry for love and for what I guess I could call acceptance and reconciliation. And this cry, when it is tapped in the artist, it taps the listener. And <clears throat> the reason, by the way, that most sermons in churches fall flat is because the preacher has not really gone into himself or herself. He or she has not gone deeply enough into themselves. The secret of preaching is, in fact, not the text, and it's not in a cerebral series of affirmations, which may be completely and perfectly true from a theological point of view. The secret of a successful sermon is when the preacher has gone to his or her own pain and his or her own suffering. I don't mean you have to lay it all out. Lay all your hurts. You know, you don't have to tell people, but you have to come from the place. You have to tell yourself that this week, I'm really stressed about that. Or this week, I'm just consumed with this particular emotion that has got me completely <clears throat> um, distracted. And use your distraction to understand what's going on with you. And when you do, when you speak from that, when you connect that hurt, because in office, almost always, it's uh, some kind of stress or uh, depression or anxiety when you, or loss or loneliness, when you, when you speak from that place, as Jack Kerouac did, he is the classic case in modern American literature, of, but there are others. Uh, when you speak from that place in tone, like the dog whistle I've often used in this illustration, the dog whistle connects with the deeper tone in the listener, and the listener uh, finds him or herself connecting with their own experience. And that's what makes the emotional connection, which makes you say afterwards, you know, that was really good, or I really like that sermon, or that really hit. So I've said that often, but Abba is a perfect example. The same is true of a writer or an essayist. The writer who really communicates is someone who's so in touch with his or her own, quote, stuff, end of quote, that this connects with others. Well, um, let's look at uh, Abba as a case in point of this, because this is a pure pop moment. It's what every preacher most profoundly would wish. Every communicator, every writer, every cineast, every poet, every musician, every producer, every dramatist, every actor and actress. This is what we are all 
seeking. We're seeking to connect uh, with others because we've connected with ourselves. And the lyrics of these songs are just mind-blowing. And I'm going to sort of give you a little tutorial now. In the lyrics of Abba, you've heard four minutes of Lay All Your Love on Me, and you can think about that song. But I'm going to talk about the lyrics, then briefly about the, the significance of the lyrics to Waterloo, and then I'll be finished. Lay All Your Love on Me has one great insight. Uh, it's a she, uh, uh, because she says, uh, despite anything in current uh, parlance, uh, when it came out, it was from the female voice, uh, and they've said all this. Now every woman I see is a potential threat. I wasn't jealous before we met. But this is the thing. Uh, she's fallen in love, obviously, with the man to whom she's addressing the song. And she says... Um, now everything is new, and all I've learned has overturned. I beg of you, don't go wasting your emotion. Lay all your love on me. And then uh, she says, a grown-up woman should never fall so easily. Unsatisfied, I skip my pride. I beg you, dear, don't go wasting your emotion. And she repeats it very long. Uh, I've had a few little love affairs. This line, everybody loved that line in Mamma Mia. I used to think that was sensible. It makes the truth even more incomprehensible because everything is new and everything is you and all I've learned has overturned. Don't go wasting your emotion. Well, if you can find your way through the Euro, the, 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 the Swedish English here, the Euro English, your English here, you'll find a very uh, major thought. And this is that love overturns all the sensible or rational ideas we have about ourselves. Everything you think is true about yourself in the face of romantic love, which is always the place to understand religion. If you want to understand God and man, if you want to understand the great Miltonian uh, issues, the great Pauline issues in ways that relate, always look at the way romantic love works uh, in all its permutations because all I've learned has overturned. Now everything is new. The truth is now, quote, even more incomprehensible. Well, um, that is true. That is a fact of life that uh, almost everything we think about ourselves is uh, some kind of rationalization for feelings and emotions that we have and entitlements and resentments and bitterness that we have. And all the rational thoughts we have are, are all so profoundly in the service of some kind of um, rationalization of something that is already emotionally in place. And when we fall in love or when we suddenly discover the nature of a passionate romantic attachment, then all the sort of things we used to think, I mean, how many people that you, do you know who've, you know, protested, I'm never going to do this or I'm never going to do that or I can't stand it when my, when my friends suddenly go off in this direction because of such and such a man or such and such a woman or such and such a thing and I've, I'm, I'm, I just can't stand those kinds of people and I just, uh, I'm never going to do that and then it happens to them. I was reading that. Is it some famous novelist whose female was writing, a, a, I think, a sort of counterintuitive op-ed piece in which she was shocked that women she knew who were her age, I think she meant in their sort of late 40s, actually, who, who could leave everything, their careers and their previous values and their previous commitments, could leave absolutely everything because uh, a man uh, looked at them uh, admiringly or suddenly looked at them as if they were pretty. Now, I'm not saying that. PZ is not saying that. 
I am remembering a column that I read of a writer who said it and was so shocked that people who she had thought were um, controlled and thoughtful and rational and and um, uh, all the different things that we like ourselves to be could suddenly leave everything behind uh, because of um, of love. And this song, Lay All Your Love on Me, will never date, despite the Tchaikovskyan beginning and the church choir sound of the rather ridiculous um, mishung of American slang and uh, European um, non-comprehensible long words just for the sake of their sound value. Don't go wasting your emotion. Lay all your love on me. Um, the all or nothing character of the romantic obsession is absolutely true. And that song will never date. Now, let's uh, move down to the conclusion here of another song that I believe is their greatest song. And I speak of as a great admirer of ABBA, and you probably are too. Not. But um, go back and listen to Waterloo. You'll have a chance at the end of this podcast. Waterloo was their breakthrough song. And this um, is full of these anglicisms or this year English that is, we would never uh, say, uh, let me just illustrate that by the first verse. My, my, at Waterloo, now I cannot, unless you listen to it, the song is such a hook. The song is so rich. It reminds me of the Raspberries, that group where you just had one borrowed hook after another, but in this case, they weren't borrowed. These, 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 these people really knew how to write a song. And there are, I can't, there are three main hooks and one subsidiary hook. Let's call it three and a half melodic hooks in ABBA. You can count them and listen to it. And they're all stirring. They're absolutely stirring. That They could be used in church and get you on your feet. They could be used marching off to battle and get the entire city, you know, throbbing. Um, uh, they're insanely uh, catchy. Um, but the English language words are ridiculous, but wonderful. My, my, at Waterloo, Napoleon did surrender. Oh, yeah? And I have met my destiny in quite a similar way. The history book on the shelf is always repeating itself. Well, who knows? Napoleon and Waterloo, you'd have to explain that to people, did surrender as opposed to surrendered, and in quite a similar way. And the history book on the shelf, what history book and what shelf is always repeating itself? Well, <clears throat> the... Uh, Get through the, the 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 humor and the absurdity of the lyric, and there is a very profound idea, and this is what I really oh, am coming to. This is really why I wanted to do this as podcast one hundred and one. What Waterloo is about, she is being oppressed by the uh, plaint of romantic love of a man. And she has been putting him off, and she she can't put him off any longer. She's surrendering. So this is her Waterloo. Knowing my fate is to be with you. Here it is. I tried to hold you back, but you were stronger. Oh, yeah? And now it seems my only chance is giving up the fight. And how could I ever refuse? I feel like I win when I lose. Waterloo. I was defeated. You won the war. Da, 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 da. Waterloo. Promise to love you forevermore. Waterloo. Couldn't escape if I wanted to. Waterloo. Knowing my fate is to be with you. So how could I ever refuse? But up but up but I feel like I win when I lose. But up but up but up a waterloo. So how could I ever refuse? I feel like I win when I lose. Now, this is amazing. What this is saying is 
we have to give up that the her only answer her only response in the face of pursuing love is to give up uh how could i ever refuse but she says and i say she because the two women are the singers here Ana Frida and Anietta how could i ever refuse i feel like i win when i lose now that is where we want to pause because when I am face to face with love and the power of love in my life and the and the 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 uh, the plea of the lover for my response, I feel like I win when I lose. Now that is deep. That is the case. That is that is the human history. Uh, archaeologically understood, and therefore, to use another phrase I've often used, teleologically expressed. I can't refuse because I feel like I win when I lose. The moment I give up my resistance, I feel like I win. Well, now, this is, this is important because everyone is fighting everything. Everybody is fighting everything. I was thinking about a situation the other day when I was, uh, I'm just fighting this. It's a theoretical thing, but I'm fighting a particular situation that I'm thinking about that it has not really to do with me, but it's more of a, of a historical or, shall we say, a, an issue out there. And everybody has issues out there that bother you. And uh, I keep wanting to say, well, I don't want to, just because uh, I don't want to pull a, you know, Eckhart Tolle, what you resist when you persist, when this is an act of evil. And that may be true, but I, all I know is that it's affecting, it's affecting me. Um, so uh, the, uh, the resistance to whatever it is outside that I'm resisting, uh, which is a, a conceptual thing, the moment I stop uh, fighting it and just sort of say, well, this is reality, that's what is, that's what's happening, at that moment I do in fact win. I give up. I, uh, I stop fighting and I win. My very act of surrender or reconciling myself to the opposing force that is uh, causing me so much inner conflict and, uh, you know, antagonism and protagonism, that uh, is ended because I immediately am relieved of the need to fight. And then, oddly enough, the very thing itself comes down. Mary said the other day, I said, you know, if we hadn't fought such and such a theological uh, pitched battle... Um, it probably wouldn't have, you know, the, 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 the it, it wouldn't have f- f- turned out in the way it did in such a way. And it was so obvious that, that Mary was right, that, that the degree to which one fights a thing often sets the, the, the cost or the demand of the victor higher than it needs to be. And uh, you have to apply this to your own life. But how could I ever refuse? I feel like I win when I lose. Now, this um, brilliant uh, repeated lyric by um, Bjorn and Benny and uh, uh, Anieta and Anifrida is so powerful and so deep. Someone was saying the other day um, how uh, they were <clears throat> really uh, upset in church because the uh, Easter hope seemed like a, a myth and a, you know it, it just seemed like sort of something that we just used to protect ourselves against the reality of the pain of death and the option it really is only to face with courage the darkness of the void after death and the meaninglessness of life given its termination at physical death and I thought to myself well yes I see that and I understand about courage but uh, from uh, from an Anifrida, Anieta, Bjorn Benny point of view, an Olveus point of view, a Polar Star Records point of view, a Waterloo Abba point of view, the answer would not be so much courage as acceptance. 
I accept whatever I understand life to be about in all its um, depressing uh, kind of resignation. And yet, whenever you actually do that, you know, whenever you actually accept what, what you feel, I, this is mental health speak, but it, it's, it's experienced in my life. Whenever you actually accept what you feel, when you accept the way you are, I might use a phrase that I think is very appropriate here. Whenever you finally begin to have compassion on the person that finds it hard to accept whatever it is you're having to accept, you then immediately are free. You sort of overwhelmingly immediately, when you accept, you almost immediately feel a kind of odd joy and a kind of tremendous relief. And oddly enough, the ability to actually do, the, the ability to actually, as Heinz said, get up in the morning and a comb hair. But I know what he means. Getting up in the morning, you know, is an act of faith for a lot of people. And so when uh, they sing... Abba, I feel like I win when I lose. They are really into the secret of life. So I commend Abba in its uh, uh, touching anthropological um, uh, unmasking of lay all your love on me and the vulnerability of the singer's uh, wish that she be loved in totality because she didn't really understand herself in her boundary making and squeamish and sort of ungenerous sense of herself. That has all been turned around. And then in this amazing hopeful word that um my only chance is giving up the fight oh yeah and how could i ever refuse i feel like i win when i lose well now